You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. I want to talk about going to a restaurant. Maybe it's a fancier restaurant. It's a big night. It's a birthday. It's an anniversary. Maybe it's a date. Maybe you got, you know, pretty good game that you, you're, you're taking to nice restaurants for that date. And at any nice restaurant, there's several courses. It's not just the one burrito, though I love a burrito. At a nicer restaurant, there's several courses, right? You, you, you got an appetizer, you get salad, there's a meal, there's a dessert, you're going all out. It's a special night. But before all that, what comes first? The bread. You got to hydrate to dominate, as my son says. Very true. But first comes the bread. And the nicer the restaurant, the fancier the bread. Maybe there's a little orange peel in the bread. Maybe there's some butter. There's some salt. There's all the goodies of bread. But if you down all the bread, if you woof it down like you've never eaten before and start shaking the basket at the person, you're going to kind of miss the point of the meal, right? You're going to fill up on the bread. You're going to miss the point of what you're really paying for unless it's Olive Garden where the breadsticks are the high and holy moment, and it's just a slow downhill. Who eats all those breadsticks and is like, oh, I can't wait for the salad. Oh, I can't wait for pasta I can make at home. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Hey. Hey, they're not a sponsor. They're not a sponsor, guys. Hey, if they start supporting us from corporate, I'll be like, Olive Garden, where we're going after church. The Lord. Um... Bread will make you full. It will. It expands your tummy. It makes you full, but it will ultimately leave you unsatisfied compared to a full, nutritious, delicious meal. And I bring that up because the people in this passage, they're filling up on the bread of Jesus's ministry, kind of the thing before even the meal, and they're missing the point of Jesus. And I'll show you. Some are amazed at the exorcism. A man who couldn't talk, can talk. He was demon-possessed. Now he's not. But the implication is that these people who are amazed, they're more fans than actual followers. Jesus' followership is not swelling. It's staying about the same. Then there's others who just slander Jesus. Jesus does this miracle, and they immediately say that Beelzebub, that Beelzebul, that must be who it is. Beelzebul, which is a borrowed idea from the local pagan uh, religions and has been around for centuries at that point. His name only appears once in the Old Testament, but what his name means, and this is really gross, is Lord of Flies, like the famous book title in English. And you can see why this demon of demons would be called Lord of the Flies, because when something is dead and something is, is rotting and unpleasant, what's usually around? Flies. And the slanders, they miss just common sense. And that's what Jesus points out. Like, hey, man, like we're healing people and throwing out demons. Obviously, I'm not prince of demons. And they ask them, hey, your sons, your followers, you Pharisees he's talking to, if your kids are throwing out demons, well, who are they doing it by? If you say, I'm doing it by Beelzebul. And the last part of the crowd just remains skeptical. Now, skeptics are really praised today. It's kind of seen as this noble idea to kind of doubt everything and really 
It really asks some questions. And I think asking good, thoughtful questions is a great thing to do. God's not afraid of our questions. The Bible's not afraid of our questions. The more questions, the better asked in faith, asked in good, uh, what's that called? Bad faith, good faith? Yeah, good faith. Yeah, asking good faith that you want to know is a great thing. However, skepticism is foolish when it just ignores evidence. Skepticism to be skeptical is very foolish. And I want to show you the skeptics here, they're asking for another sign when Jesus has given a lot of signs. This is just in the book of Luke so far. Check it out. It starts to get a little overwhelming when you see the whole list. Luke 4, Jesus passes through a mob unharmed. Luke 4, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, then turns around and heals all the sick people and exercises all the demons of everyone who came into town around sunset. Luke 5, he has a miraculous catch of fish. Luke 5, he also cleanses a leper and he heals and forgives a paralytic, something they'd never seen before. Someone go from paralyzed to walking. In Luke 6, he heals a crippled man's hand on the, on the Sabbath. In 7, he heals the centurion's servant from far away. It's like a distance healing. So he's breaking every single formula. They're like, oh, healings work like this. It's like, I don't know. He's healing in all sorts of ways and all sorts of people. He raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead. That's a jump all the way into bringing people back from the dead. It says the child was on a briar on a funeral cart and he pops back up. Luke 8, the winds and the waves obey Jesus on the storm on the lake. He heals a demon-possessed man among the tombs. Jarius' daughters raised from the dead. A woman had 12 years of bleeding. No doctor could help her, but now she is healed by Jesus by mere touch. You get to Luke 9, and now Jesus is empowering the 12 disciples to be sent out and successfully preach and perform miracles themselves. So Jesus' power is not just restricted to him, but he's imparting it to people. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. That's a lot of people. 5,000, they're just counting the men. And homes weren't small back then. Those are at least families of four, probably more like six. This is like healing 30 or feeding 30,000 stomachs at once on a hillside. This is a miracle that starts to just shake the region of something that no one has ever seen before. Jesus heals a demon-oppressed boy that could only be driven out with prayer. Luke 10, Jesus sends out not 12, but now 72 disciples who successfully preach and perform miracles as well. So when they ask like, well, if only he did this one more miracle, it's like he raised two people from the dead in there. He fed 30,000 people. Jerusalem is like maybe 50,000 people at the time, counting all the men, women, and children. So he would have fed the entire city of the largest city they could possibly imagine unless they were a sailor. It would be saying, this guy fed all of Atlanta. We're like, Ooh, that's kind of a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And so skeptics like slanders and even the amazed people, they are just seeing this exorcism. And just seeing the exorcism is missing the point of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. The point isn't Jesus is a powerful exorcist, someone who drives out or excises or removes demons, but rather the point of every exorcism, every miracle, every healing is that Jesus is God. And more pointedly, he is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's God and he's God on a mission. And Jesus loves his critics and those who would even call themselves enemies enough to say, stop filling up on the bread. Put the basket 
down. This exorcism, if you debate it, you're gonna miss the point. You're gonna miss the meal, the point of who I am, what I'm doing, and why it really matters. You're gonna end up like a little kid with an empty basket of bread and a tummy ache in the side of the booth. You don't wanna be that. The crowds, you are people who are hungry for God and the hungry souls will find their meal in this Messiah that they've always been looking for whether they knew it or not. Jesus doesn't want them to miss the meal. And gracious Jesus tells a story to help them understand that it's not about this one exorcism. It's about the larger story of God's mission through Christ. Look at verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace or castle, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, and takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides his spoil. Spoils like the treasures of someone. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is certainly not Beelzebul. He doesn't do these things by the power of Satan, but rather Jesus does them by the finger of God. He says he overcomes the strong man, Satan of this world, by being an even stronger man and does it by the very finger of God. Now, the finger of God just sounds cool to us, amen? That just sounds like a cool phrase. But if you are a Jew and you know the Old Testament, the finger of God is quite a claim. Jesus is claiming from Exodus uh, chapter 8, when God was bringing the plagues down on Pharaoh to free the Jews, the magicians of Pharaoh could replicate the first two plagues. They did this, we can do it too. They did this, we can do it too. But then the plagues got so big and so extreme, it was the gnats that did it, kind of like the South, that the magicians threw up their hands and said, "Um, whoever Moses is doing this by, it must be the finger of God. Meaning it must be the real God. The Bible affirms magic is real to a limited extent, dark magic. But they say it's the finger of God that's doing these things in a way that we can't replicate. That this is a move of God. This is no trick of Moses. But God is in the building, so watch out Pharaoh. And Exodus goes on to describe God himself as writing the Ten Commandments by his finger, carving them in stone for his people. And then the Psalms and Isaiah borrow this imagery describing the natural world being crafted by the hands and even fingers of God. So when Jesus claims he's working by the finger of God, he's saying, I am God. And everything I do has unlimited power and authority. Jesus is more than an exorcist. Jesus is not an upstart trying to prove anything to anyone, but the creator himself, the one who brings salvation and judgment to mankind. He's telling them, stop eating the rolls and realize royalty is among you, for Jesus himself is the king who's bringing the kingdom. And Jesus compares himself in this story, his mission to a robbery. Satan's the strong man in the castle. The demons are but an appetizer of Jesus's work. Jesus has come to storm the castle and take Satan's possessions by force. Now, Satan has had this limited, temporary ownership of the world before Christ. 
Remember, Satan is a fallen angel. His demons are likewise in an evil horde of similar spirits and things. And they're all bent on destroying all that God has made and ultimately keeping glory from God. That's what Satan wants to do. And the way to keep glory from God is to keep us enslaved to sin. Because every time we sin, we're saying, I don't trust God in his ways. So every sin of us is stealing glory from God. So Satan's objective is to keep us sinning. If we're sinning, we're not living by faith. Maybe we don't even turn to faith. Maybe we stay lost and we think we're free, but we're not. Jesus tells us he's stronger. He's on the attack. And all of Jesus's miracles are signs of a kingdom of God breaking in. If you wonder why there's so many miracles in the gospels, it's because it's proving the kingdom of God is coming to earth and that it is a stronger kingdom than darkness. That the demons cannot continue to oppress people. They cannot continue to thrive because the king has arrived. See, the devil held us as willing captives. In some ways we are kidnapped, but by our sin, we also were okay with it, whether we knew it or not. And this is where the finger of God starts to break Satan's grip. Sometimes we miss seeing Jesus this way. Jesus, the victor, Jesus, the conqueror of death and evil and Satan. And we should see Jesus as this beautiful, gentle, merciful savior that he is, but he's also this striking war hero of heroes that deserves all of our worship. There's a mightiness to Jesus that we miss, that he is the one who's robbing Satan. And do you notice who his spoil of war is? What's Jesus taking? Taking back? What's Jesus even stealing? What's the violence that's coming that's brought his spoil? It's you. You are the treasure to God. Jesus is pulling off a gospel heist, a gospel invasion, a gospel robbery. He's breaking the power of the strong man to bring us into his kingdom. Kingdom can be summarized as life with God. He's taking you from life without God to life with God. And Colossians 1 gives a beautiful picture of this. It says, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is telling the crowd, stop slandering. Stop just being amazed. Start believing. Don't be skeptic, but realize the kingdom of God is in. The transfers are happening. Jesus is sacking the kingdom of Satan. That Jesus is the true king of the world. He's the Messiah who wins. But do you notice how he wins? How does Jesus, a man with no sword, free a people who are helpless? How does Jesus free us? How do the captives like me go free as he proclaimed in Luke 4? And I want to introduce you to a concept you may have never heard, maybe never heard preached, and it's called ransom. And it's at the heart, really, of the gospel. This idea that we have been ransomed by God. And it flows throughout the Bible. The language is used and built on in the law, in Exodus, in Numbers, in Leviticus, and then expanded in the Psalms, in Jeremiah, and Isaiah, and Hosea. 
And ransom is this idea. They're all looking for someone to pay the price for sins. Jesus' robbery is by ransom. Jesus pays the price to have us released from the devil's power. Look how Jesus explains it in Mark 10. He says, for even the Son of Man, that's a title for Jesus. You just put Jesus there. For even Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about ransom in, like a, in, in, a, in a movie where the robbers take a ransom and you got to pay it off to get, get the kid back. We were held at a ransom. But our ransom is our guilt. Our ransom is our debt. Because without that paid off, we can't go free. We're trapped until the ransom is paid. And 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians explain and expand this idea. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. But how was it paid? It was paid with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. The ransom Jesus had to pay to break the power of sin over us is his blood. No amount of money will save no amount of beauty, no amount of popularity, no amount of good deeds, but only the precious blood of actually God would ever free you. First Corinthians puts it this way, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were not born the people of God, but born under Satan's control from our smallest of ages. And it's only the blood of Jesus that can set us free, that can pay the ransom that we were trapped as long as we were indebted. But on the cross of Jesus, he became this blood payment to break Satan's grip to where we could go free. The ransom has been this plan of God from the very beginning. He doesn't want them to miss it. Don't just focus on I can conquer this kind of demon or that kind of demon or heal this sort of thing or that. That's amazing but it points to the great steal. He's stealing a people for himself. Look at Revelation 5. This is our hope. And they, this is all of God's people of all time. They sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break the seals and open it. For you, Jesus, were slaughtered. That's what happens on the cross. The lamb is slaughtered for our ransom. And your blood, was, and your blood has ransomed a people for God from every tribe, from every language and people and nation. Church, that's your future. That's your future. That Jesus has stormed the castle and paid the ransom and the captives will go free following Jesus out the door till one day we will all worship the Lamb of God. Every tribe, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people of all time. There will be so many languages spoken, it'll be wild, not just modern ones. Ones that people don't even speak anymore. People we've never even heard of in our our little tiny chunk of time and space. And it's gonna blow our minds. But you start to see ransom is everywhere. That Jesus came, but the cost was himself. He doesn't win with the sword. In fact, he gets stabbed in the side. He gets nailed through the hands and feet. He breaks the power of Satan with his love. That's the only way we're making it home, fam. There is no plan B. 
There's just plan A, that the love of God would come and break the spell literally of Satan. As we're talking about magic all the way through here, that the captives could be free, but only through Jesus. That's our future. Jesus will dine with us, but right now he's still robbing Satan in order to bring us home. And this informs, you know, you can think, okay, that's cool on the cross. That's cool at the end of time. But listen how practical it is because Paul tells us this is how we should do church then. Speaking to pastors right here, it says Acts 20, 28. He says, listen to this. Listen about how, how ransom informs what we do and care. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word for elders, same word for pastors. They're all interchangeable. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you elders, pastors, to care for the church of God, which he obtained, literally purchased with his own blood. Have you thought about that God himself, the infinite God, bled for you? If that makes you a little uncomfortable, if that's like breaking some categories, well, it's just scripture breaking them. I'm just telling you what's put into into the ink of Scripture. That God by his own blood has purchased us, ransomed us. And we are to care about what God cares about. So if God bleeds for you, then we should care for one another. That we're actually interconnected in this thing. That we're the spoil of the gospel heist and you're actually the treasure of God. Not because you're more special in comparison to someone else, but rather you're very valuable because of the eye of the beholder. It is the eye of the beholder that gives us value, that our value from God is worth the robbery that will cost his son, not because we're special, but rather because God loves you. And when the infinite love of God, the beholder is focused on us, we become infinitely lovely and valuable to God. And he's the only opinion that matters. All the world races to be the most beautiful or races to be the most wealthy or the most popular and all these things are most successful or to win their parents' approval or whatever else. And the devil laughs at that. Look at them all running around as captives, comparing each other. When Jesus says, I've flung wide the gate, I've paid to break the the locks, the ransom is in and it's time to be go free. You don't have to live in the kingdom of darkness. You don't have to compare yourself to anyone else. You can go free. Go free with this Lord. Listen to how God describes us. Once you see the ransom language, you you, kind of can't miss it in the Bible. Listen how God describes us in Zechariah 2.8. It's one of the prophets. For thus says the Lord of hosts. I love the Lord of hosts. This this Lord of all the, 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 the interplanetary universe, the Lord of the stars, the Lord of all the things, the God of gods. After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Got ransom themes again in the prophets and Zechariah and Psalms. Deuteronomy has this idea of apple of his eye. And you've probably heard that phrase before, right? You might not be aware it comes from the Bible, but you've probably heard that phrase. And when someone says someone's the apple of their eye, it comes from this ancient idea that your eye, right here, your pupil especially, is round. 
It's round and black, it's glossy, and it has a reflection of what you see. And what the phrase would mean is that an apple's also round. And that if you put an apple close enough to your eye, it would fill the whole circle of your pupil. So when God says you're the apple of his eye, he's saying that God is so focused on you, you take up his entire gaze that you are the special thing he's beholding. You'll notice the phrase is used pretty often. That God loves you with his infinite love, a love that borders lines on obsession. I cannot overestimate God's love for you. We do all the time. For whatever reason, we put limits on it. It's like, ah, but in my marriage, they only love me this much, or, or my parents, or my kids, or my friends. We start to compare love to all of our human relationships, and they all have a limit, no matter how lovely they are. Maybe you're someone with 100 great relationships. I'm super jealous of you. <laughs> but the thing is, don't let your human relationships become the cap of someone who says you're the apple of his eye. God has an infinite love for you or else he wouldn't have ransomed you. The cost is too high unless love is the motive and the Lord's not running out of love. Amen. Amen. And Jesus is highlighting this very fact. I've come on a rescue mission. Don't get distracted. And he gives us two warnings at the end. He says, we must gather the Jesus or be scattered. We must leave the kingdom of darkness by choice. We must turn and follow Jesus out the dang door, all right? There is a gospel of truth and light waiting for us. We must follow Jesus. And he gives two warnings. First, he warns us that neutrality, it won't work. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it'll find the house swept, house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus is making so clear that exorcism doesn't save you. You can think that's amazing. I, I want that to happen. And in one way, awesome. In another way, exorcism is not salvation that without obedience to Jesus, we actually might end up worse than our first than, than we were at first. The, the first state might be better than the last, or the last state might be worse than the first. And the kingdom of God is not entered by neutrality. A choice must be made. There is no neutral. And he's probably specifically talking to a Jewish audience that says, hey, the law did clean up your life. You did maybe put the house in order. You did want to follow the law. You did change some things about you, but that will not be enough. You need more than even Jesus, the exorcist. You need Jesus, the savior, a ransom for you. And the same holds for good moral people today. I meet good moral people of all different faiths and people don't believe in God but they still need a savior and ransom because it's not about us comparing each other. It's about us being freed by Jesus himself. And Jesus gives a second warning. Jesus springs off an opportune encouragement from the crowd. Verse 27 says, and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, 
Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, the woman wants to encourage Jesus by complimenting his mom. That was a a common thing. It even sounds nice today. You know, you hear something like, oh, you must have had parents that they really taught you well or loved you well or something like that. And she yells it out. She's excited. It's equivalent to giving a hearty amen to Jesus. Amen. But maybe not in the way we would today. And remember, blessed means that you have the happy, good life with God. You have salvation and it's springing forth in life and everything you do. But Jesus warns that only those who follow him are blessed. That no one and nothing else can save us, not even our mom. The kingdom of God is not entered by association. Mary, mother of Jesus, she got to repent and believe like everybody else. Don't pray to Mary. It won't do anything because she's a human who needs a savior too, even though it's her own son. It doesn't matter your religious upbringing, your parents' faith, your kids' faith, your hometown. We're not saved by association. We're not saved by affiliation. We're not saved even by blood relation. God shows zero favoritism, but invites all to his table. And everyone must hear the gospel of Jesus and obey Jesus by faith to enter the kingdom of God. We are ransomed, and now we walk out of Satan's house and into the freedom of God's country. Church, let Jesus be the main course and the main focus of your life. You are no fool to make him number one. Because you are the apple of God's eye. You're the apple of his eye. So making him the main course, the main thing in your life isn't silly but it's the right response. And if you don't believe yet, could you imagine that God himself would bleed for you? That real blood was shed on the cross to save your real body and soul. Not on accident, but by divine plan, simply because he loves you. Not because you're going to have enough character or do enough good deeds or anything else. That God dies, he comes for the robbery and the ransom just because he loves you. Don't delay. Hear this gospel and believe. For only Jesus saves. Neutrality is not an option.